Join us in Huntsville, Alabama, on the campus of Oakwood University for the annual Pastoral Evangelism and Leadership Conference. The theme for this year's power-packed event is Whole, putting together the pieces of worship, home, outreach, leadership, and evangelism together. Come and be inspired through uplifting worship, informative seminars, and dynamic preaching from Dr. James Perkins, Dr. Abraham Jules, Pastor Kim Bolgen, Pastor Roger Hernandez, Chaplain Dillis Brooks, Pastor John Coxon, and many more. You cannot afford to miss this annual life-changing conference happening from December 2nd to December 5th. For more information and registration, visit pelkpower.com. That's P-E-L-C-Power.com. Welcome to the Lead Podcast, helping you to get it, grow it, and give it. Hello, everyone, and this is uh, your host, Roger Hernandez. This is the Lead Podcast. Carl Vaders is our special guest today. Welcome to the podcast, Carl. Great to be with you. We are so excited to have you on, uh, one, because your book uh, on small churches and how uh, small churches can be a blessing and not a forgotten aspect of our denominations and churches and alliances. Uh, the book that you wrote was fantastic. I read it. I recommended it. And we're very excited to have you on the program. So let's start in the beginning. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So people who do know, not know who you are, tell us a little bit about your history, um, both uh, in your uh, walk with Christ and also in your professional life. Sure. I'm actually a third-generation pastor, so I was uh, born and raised in the church. And I uh, gave my life to Christ at a um, children's meeting when I was uh, six or seven. Uh, so I came out of a life of horrible sin and depravity as a six-year-old. Uh, <laughs> uh, said yes to Jesus and, and never looked back. So, uh, you know, don't, don't despise those small beginnings when our kids give our, their life to Christ. Uh, those, those, are, those can be a permanent and lifetime commitments that they make. And uh, most recently, uh, you know, I, I was a pastor for, I've been a pastor now for about 35 years, first couple of years as an associate pastor, then a couple smaller churches. Uh, and then my third, small, all of my lead uh, pastoring has been in smaller churches. I've been in my current church for just over 25 years. And um, several years ago, um, well, and, and my current church is in Orange County, California, just eight miles south of Disneyland. So uh, it's one of those situations where it, the reason well, my church isn't small because there are a few people to draw on. There's millions and millions of people uh, right around us. But our church has stayed small. We've gone through some times of frustration. But uh, long story short, we ended up in a place where we realized God has called us to do ministry in a small context, but in a big way. Mm -hmm. uh, so sometimes in um, in church life, when we go to this conferences and we hear the speakers usually is I started in my living room with my mother-in-law and my wife and my wife wasn't even a Christian and now we're 30,000 people six months later right that's sort of like the story the narrative so big uh, equals blessing so if you're not big there's somehow something wrong with you 
So talk to me about why bigger is not always necessarily better and why God can operate through a small church uh, as well. As Before you answer the question, let me just give you a little bit of context. In our particular denomination, which is this podcast goes to a thousand pastors of a thousand churches in the southern part of the United States, most of our churches, probably 90% of our churches are under 250 members. Probably 50% are under 100 members. Uh, so the most of the audience that you have are small church pastors that have been made to feel that their churches, if they're small, they're not being blessed. So talk to me about that for a moment. Yeah, well, first of all, what you just described is not unusual. It is typical across denominational barriers, across regions of the country and around the world. 90% under 200 or so is typical. So uh, you're not broken, you're normal, and small is not broken, small is normal. Um, I think big churches are great, too. I'm not anti-big at all. I, I simply think that small churches have not been appreciated as much as they should be and have not been resourced as much as they should be. But bigger isn't always better simply for the reason that some people do worship better in a big environment. They walk into a large room and it makes them feel like they're part of something bigger. But a whole lot of people, probably more people than that, feel more drawn into worship and feel more inspired and feel more encouraged to go out and do ministry within the context of a smaller environment. Um, you know, big church pastors are always saying, and correctly so, that uh, if you want to really be involved in their church, you need to be in a small group because that's where the real involvement is. And they're right to uh, emphasize that, and they're right to really push their members towards that. But in a small church, that small environment is done already typically on a, on a weekend service. And so that's one of the advantages that small churches have is that it gives you that intimate environment right away. And a whole lot of people, that's how they prefer to do church and do worship and be inspired for ministry. Now, why do you think that small churches are not celebrated and are made sometimes to feel that there's something wrong with you? What, what, do, you, what do you think that is? Well, I, I think there's a, a kind of a logical progress to that. If we're going to be reaching new people, then those new people are going to come into the church, and so the church will get bigger. So the assumption is made that if the church isn't getting bigger, then we must not be reaching new people, and therefore we're not a healthy church. That sounds correct when you just state it logically. The problem is with any theory that we have, like any good scientist, they might have a theory and go, oh, that makes sense. But then they have to actually experiment and check it against the actual real world. And when we check that logic against the real world, what we discover is there are so, so many smaller churches that are, in fact, doing great ministry and reaching people and being effective uh, for God's kingdom, but they are not growing numerically in the way that has been anticipated. So there must be something else going on. And the something else going on is usually that there are a handful of pastors that are really called to and are good at uh, putting together large events and large crowds and maybe building big buildings, but most of, aren't, uh, of us aren't called to that. Most of us are called to lead within a smaller environment, and we can be effective in that. Now, I just, on a personal note, I just want to let you know that your, your book uh, was a lifesaver. I last week had a conversation with a small church pastor who was at their wits end, and it's a typical conversation that I will have multiple times in a year. 
what's wrong with me? What am I doing wrong? It's like this, uh, you know, self-flagellation. Like they either blame their church or they blame themselves. So I just want to um, encourage you, and and I know from experience as a writer myself, writing a book is hard work. It's not just uh, sitting down on a keyboard. It has to make sense. Yours does. So I just want to thank you and appreciate you for writing that. It's been a lifesaver, an actual lifesaver for pastors who are close to burnout and close to leaving the ministry. Now, you mentioned in your book that you were at one point close to burnout. Uh, can you tell us about that experience? Tell us that story. Um, what caused it? What did you learn from it? Um, how have you? How did it change the way you view ministry after that experience? Yeah, well, if by close to burnout you mean smack dab in the middle of it, yeah, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to be gracious. Was, I, did, I didn't want to throw yeah, you under no, the bus. I appreciate it. Look, you know, looking at burnout from the inside out is where I was. Um, yeah, uh, what happened was, you know, I've been in my, my current church, uh, and I had been in it at that point, 17 or 18 years, and we'd had some growth when we showed up 25 years ago. On a big Sunday, there were 30 people, and they were very discouraged. They'd been through five pastors in 10 years, and they had just about voted to close the church down. And I came in, and I expected, you know, take a look around. This is this is a huge area with all kinds of people and tons of big churches. I mean, the original Calvary Chapel, the original Vineyard, Saddleback Church, Crystal Cathedral, they're all within a half an hour drive of my front door. Marcy. So I thought, I thought, yeah, we're going we're gonna to be really big really soon because take a look at all the people here. As long as we do the things right, that'll happen. And we did have some growth, uh, but not extreme growth. And we stayed a small church. And I got to the point where even after we had a season of, of, of quick growth, we actually went up to 400 people for a little while. And then shortly after that, went way down to under 100 again. And, and there had been no scandal and there had been no split. So I was left reeling and wondering, you know, what have I done wrong here? And in that process, I started looking around and asking, well, maybe we're a small church because we're supposed to be. And if we're supposed to be, what does a really, really healthy small church look like? And um, I couldn't find very much help. So I started scrounging wherever I could to find bits and pieces of help and basically put it all together on my first book and then eventually added to it for my second one. But that was, that was my journey. I, I, I got to the point where I actually walked away from the church for 40 days. And uh, the only reason I left for 40 days was because I couldn't find an 80 in the Bible. Um, <laughs> you know, I wanted to leave. I wanted to leave longer, but I figured if it's in the Bible, they'll give it to me, and it's all 40s in the Bible. Well, it, um, it, it, it's in the Second James, chapter 15. There we yeah. go. That yeah. pesky Second James is where all the good stuff is. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so, so I, yeah, I actually walked away. didn't know if I would come back, and, and the Lord helped me during that season to figure out how to redefine success in ministry, to, to appreciate a healthy church, even if it didn't have the you know vastly expanding numbers going on in it that there are great ways to do ministry but it took a real shift of my mindset i had to realize that a normal sized church is not a broken church and that if i'm called to pastor a normal sized church that that is not a brokenness in me that is a calling from god for me now walk us through that process when you had uh you had 30 then you had 400 then you had 100 
did did right. you see the, wh why did it happen? You said there were no splits, there were no moral failings. People just stopped coming from one Sunday to the next, or they they just uh, yeah. it was gradual. What, what, what what's uh, what what was some of the reason? What we thought this was different than it is. What 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 was the reasoning behind it? Well, in my first fifteen years, we grew from thirty to about one hundred and fifty, and then in the next couple of years, we were running. We got to about two hundred, and at that point. Uh, we have a very, very tiny building with 200 people in it. We were jamming everybody into two services and we were overflowing our very tiny parking lot. So I found a local junior high school and I found that big multi-purpose room that they all have. And it was about three times the size of our sanctuary. So we moved into there for our weekend services. And in the next 20 months, from the moment we moved into that school, in the next 20 months, we went from 200 to 400. So we doubled in less than two years. Mm. And that was, so at that point, we were looking ahead and thinking two years from now, we're going to be at 600. So we hired staff for 600 and we were moving forward. And after a few months of kind of hanging out at the 400 level, then in the next 10 months is when it dropped all the way down to under 100 people. Okay. And, uh, and it took a long time afterwards to assess what was going on because nobody left angry. Everybody who left, if I could talk to them and ask why are they leaving, they, they couldn't really put their finger on it either. Something just wasn't right. Um, but I think there were two primary issues that were there. The first one had to do with uh, my, my internal dialogue, and the second one had to do with uh, the way we'd been ministering. So the first one on my internal dialogue was, um, it, I was spending, all, once you get over 200, you have to change the way you pastor. You can no longer be hands-on with the people. You have to be more of a manager. And so I was spending all of my time, once we got above 200, doing things that I'm not good at, that I don't. I'm not called to do, and that really sucked my soul dry. So I was doing the fundraising and the managing of the staff mm. and fighting with City Hall and trying to find a facility and all of that, all of which you have to do above 200, but I'm not called to do that. And so it was leaving me completely empty on the inside. And people don't want to be led by a, by a pastor who's shriveling up on the inside emotionally and spiritually. They didn't know that, but they could sense it subconsciously, and so they left. Uh, secondly, uh, when we grew from 200 to 400, we, it wasn't through conversion growth. We were entertaining bored Christians. Okay. We were the latest. We were the latest hot church in town for a little while, and when we stopped being the hot church, they went off somewhere else. And then actually, there's a third one. The third one was, I, you know, I said that at 400 we went out and hired staff for 600. The reason we had to hire staff was because we had not not been training our own people to step up for that growth. We had not been doing what the scripture says, which is to equip God's people for works of ministry. That's the job given to the pastor in Ephesians chapter uh, four, verses 11 and 12. That's, that's what we were supposed to do and we weren't doing it. And so um, it, it collapsed because it was built on a house of cards. Now that's, that's fascinating conversation uh, that we're having with Carl. And Carl, I just want to know, as you as you went through that period of of rapid growth and then uh, not so much, um, what was the feedback that you were getting from your members? Where where as you were going through that burnout and you were you were doing things that you're not gifted to, um, did it seem to you they were pushing back as well? Like you're pushing us too far to go too fast, too far. Uh, with the accepting the change? Well, how were they relating to you and to your leadership and to your vision as you were going through this? Uh, we were growing and now we're not, and we moved to this and we staff, but there's not 600 here. 
Um, how, how was the, the membership reaction during that season? Well, it was really split down the middle because if you remember the numbers, it was 200 up to 400 down to under 100, which means we lost half of the people we started that growth spurt with. Mm-hmm. So we had, you know, half the people left. So yeah, those half were frustrated and confused and hurt and didn't know what was going on. And so they just, they just left out the door. But those ones who left, the under 100 who stuck with it, they were as supportive and as kind and as loving as can be. They were trying to move it forward and couldn't figure out why it didn't work either. And they hung in there with me, even as I, you know, flamed out and almost destroyed a good church. They stayed with me. They prayed for me. They, you know, they worked together. So the Lord helped us to restore the church again. Now, you know, so eight, seven, eight years later, we run 150 to 170 on a typical Sunday morning. But more than the numbers, we are now a really, really healthy church. We have doubled down on discipleship and, uh, you know, making sure that we're helping to grow people up, uh, sending them out into ministry. Uh, and if we were to grow again at that pace, we could do it without hiring a single person from the outside right now, because we have a leadership capacity that is double our current size because we've worked really hard at discipleship. Perfect. Now, you, you mentioned discipleship. Uh, sometimes the way we measure the healthiness of a congregation, uh, and it's, I guess, human nature, sometimes the metrics we use are not necessarily biblical metrics. It's, uh, you know, bodies, budgets, and buildings. Uh, let's talk about discipleship, which is, bodies how how what discipleship process let's go into the nuts and bolts of a small church um you don't have a thousand people uh to put in a class how, what kind of discipleship process i really like that section in your book that's the process that you found yourself using what what's your discipleship process that you use right now how is it working for you um encourage some of the small church pastors that are listening to this right now sure yeah, I mean, in a smaller church, when somebody comes to know Christ or somebody comes to the church who maybe, in our, in our church, we have at least as many, maybe more people who have fallen away from the faith who come back to the faith in our church than first-time believers. But either way, the process is the same. In a smaller church, we can actually meet with every new believer or with every new member, and so we do, either me or my associate pastor, depending if they're youth or adults. Uh, we sit down and we, and we meet with them, sometimes one-on-one, sometimes with two or three people. And if you sit down with somebody and you t- take an hour and you ask them the right questions, you can find out an awful lot about them. And, you know, in, in a single meeting, if you ask the right questions, uh, you can discover, uh, oh, this, kind of, this person isn't a book learner. They're going to be more learning by being a part of a team and, and cooperating things together. Or somebody else is going to be a reader, and so you're going to put them together with somebody who maybe likes to read, and they can discipleship each other, disciple each other that way. But the bottom line is that in a smaller church, you can take the time to actually tailor-make the discipleship process for each person. So you can sit down with somebody for an hour and at the end of it say, hey, we've got a class coming up that I think would be perfect for you. And we do now have a discipleship uh, class that we do. We do about a dozen people at a time, and there's always one starting up within the next uh, month or two. But I don't even recommend everybody go into that right away. Sometimes it's going to be, you know, given what you've gone through, uh, here's someone who's gone through something similar to that. I'm going to call them up and see if they'd be willing to meet with you once a week. And why don't you do that? And once you've done that for a few months, come back to me again, and we'll see if we can move you into another step. And it might be our discipleship class, or it might be meeting with somebody else. So what we do is we really tailor make it to the person, because when you're smaller, you can. Uh, in a bigger church, the pastor can't meet with every new believer. 
Uh, and so they do have a class system that they push them through, and that usually works very, very well for most people. But in a smaller church, people typically come to a smaller church because they want a, hand, a more hands-on ministry situation, and so we have the opportunity to give them that. Now let's talk about budgets uh, in a small church without you know, the millions of dollars of resources. Uh, how do you raise funds? How do you budget? How do you distribute the funds when they're limited? How do you make sure you're financially viable with less people to draw from? Yeah, well, for the, our, our number one rule financially in our church is we never decide whether or not to do a ministry based on the budget. We decide whether or not to do a ministry based on whether or not we believe that God is calling us to do that ministry or meet that need. Okay. And then if we make the decision, yes, we're going to do that, then we look at it and say, okay, how we do that ministry now may be different because of our budget, but we're not going to, we're not going to stop doing it. So we make the decision, yes, we're going to do that ministry. Then we look around and what, what options do we have for doing that? And the main difference over the last few years for us financially has been because we are now discipling our own people and raising our own leaders, when you have um, a, a higher level of strong and mature leaders in the church, you need less money. Uh, you know, you don't have to go out and hire somebody because they're there already. And if you look at any businesses or any church's budget, you will find the largest amount allocated out of any budget is for people. It's for salaries. It's to pay the people who do the work. It's not for the, the physical product. And certainly in the church, since we don't have a physical product, we, you know, we have a building. But, you know, mo in most churches, most of the money uh, goes into, you know, people things, unless it's a very, very small church and all they can do is, you know, pay to keep the lights on in the building and the pastor is working for free. So because we have limited financial resources, the more we can train our people to do the work, the less it will cost us. So that's the, that's the, that's the second part of it. And then the third part of it for finances is once people have really been raised in discipleship and they've really been brought into a, a place of passion for ministry, they tend to be more generous in it because they're involved in it themselves. Right. It's, it's hard to raise money to send to a ministry that we don't have a connection to. It's easier to raise money for a ministry that 25 to 30 percent of the people in your church are already involved in hands-on. That's, that's, that's beautiful. And, and so um, uh, relevant because one, one of the things that I, that I, as I talk to pastors, that I get feedback on is having the ability to raise funds uh, for ministries. And I really appreciate what you said in the beginning, which is, The first question is not, do we have money? In fact, I don't remember ever having the money before I started something God told me to do. Uh, it's just God, I don't know why, He has a sense of humor. You know, He created giraffes, and He has a sense of humor that He wants you to start something, and then He'll provide the resources. Like, He wants to send a message that He's in charge of stuff, um, because He is. And, and let's talk about, back to the story, you had... Uh, so you, you moved out of that building and started meeting in a school. So, you know, the third B, which is buildings. After you started meeting in the school and then the attendance went down, do you go back to the same building? What, what's your building situation now? And how do you manage that for more effectiveness? Yeah, we're, we're back in our original building. Um, you know, the, the advantage of where we are is that there are a lot of people to draw from. The disadvantage is because there are so many people, land is extraordinarily expensive. 
So we have, you know, we have a street on one side of our building and we have less than an acre. It's a tiny building. And then we have building, we have, you know, houses on all three other sides of our building and each house goes for an average of over $700,000. And they, we're not in a, we're not in a fancy area. We're in an average. In fact, we're in a, we're in a lower to lower middle income area. That simply is how expensive it is to live where we live. So we look around and we go, our church of 150, we can't exactly, you know, afford to buy the houses around us to increase our land size, which is the only way to do it. So we have to figure out how to do better ministry in our smaller building. And, and the main way we've done that is the way I like to tell our folks is this: we don't do ministry. We don't just do ministry in the building. We have to think about how to do ministry from the building. Okay. So if the building is the place where we gather, it is the place where we go from. And far too many churches, I think, have a uh, a mentality of all of the ministry happening within inside the four walls of the building. We got to go out to bring people in is is the constant thing. But for us, we don't have the space to bring them in, so we just have to go out and do ministry out there. So we have ministries and groups in the area that we've connected with, and we do ministry there, and all of the results of that ministry stays out there. Uh, they may find another church to go to, or we're involved with a church that with people that are physically so far removed from us that they can't physically make it to our building, so they go to another church on uh, on a weekend service. So that's what we've ch- we've had to change because our building is so small. The only way for the building not to limit our ministry effectiveness is to do ministry from the building, not only to do ministry in the building. We do a lot of ministry in the, in the building too, pretty much seven days a week. But that's the smallest part of what we do is what happens inside the walls. And now, talk to me a little bit about uh, books you've written. Uh, I've read one of them, uh, found it to be Small Church Essentials, very, very practical and very good. Talk to me about those books. We're going to put the information in the show notes for the pastors who are listening to it. Um, which one should I read first? Why, what was the purpose behind them? Why did you write them? What's, what information can I find in, in each one? Talk to me about, about those resources. Sure. I, each book is written to stand on its own, so you could read them in any order. But if somebody does want to read both, I recommend reading them in the order they were written. So I would start with The Grasshopper Myth, which I wrote five years ago, and uh, then Small Church Essentials, which came out just a few months ago. Um, and it, it, this, this whole thing started with after that season of, of burnout, um, and then deciding, hey, we got to figure out how to be a healthy church uh, while we're small. I started researching and writing everything down and started putting together ways of sharing it with our own congregation. And I ended up with enough material that I thought there might be a book in this. Actually, my wife said, hey, quit whining about it and write a book about it. Uh, <laughs> and I, I said, nobody wants to read a book by me. Nobody's ever heard of me. I'm just a small church pastor and, you know, in, in, some t- in this little town. Uh, it was a little town in the middle of a whole bunch of big towns. She said, well, who else is going to write a book about pastoring a small church other than a small church pastor? And how many famous ones are there? Mm-hmm. So, uh, okay. Zero, yeah. The fact that I'm, yeah, the fact that I'm not well-known shouldn't stop me from writing it. So I, write it, I wrote it really just kind of to get it off my chest because I thought these things needed to be said. But then almost instantly when I started to promote it on Facebook and I started my, my blog, People started buying it and inviting me to come and speak. It just took off in a way that nobody anticipated. And then over the last five years, I've been speaking at conferences and doing podcasts like yours and spending a lot of time among other small church pastors. So in the last five years, 
I've learned an awful lot. I've gotten a whole lifetime of education about small churches in the last five years because I've spent time with thousands and thousands of small church pastors. And so the second book, Small Church Essentials, is the result of all the things that I've learned over the last five years. And I've boiled them down to the things that are in common across all churches. That's why I call them the essentials, because I've learned a whole lot of stuff that applies in this particular type of church or in a rural area or in a city area or, right, and, and they, they're kind of bits and pieces. But when I look down and saw which ones tend to apply everywhere I go, and that's what I put into the book. Now, in our uh, in the time that we left that we have together, uh, can you can you encourage and speak directly to the small church pastor who's uh, maybe just getting there or who's been there for a little bit and he has that grasshopper syndrome? And when we go to denominational meetings, the ones that get to speak from the front and to give reports are all the big-time pastors, but nobody ever recognizes him. Nobody ever gives him a plaque. Not like we need more plaques, right? Because uh, I, sure. I, don't, I, I don't need another plaque. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but encourage them. Talk to their heart. You know, pour into them. Uh, tell them uh, something that could be uh, beneficial or uplifting as we close out the podcast. Sure. Yeah, the main word I would have for my fellow small church pastors is, uh, your church is big enough. Um, too often we think, uh, uh, you know, once we get to a certain size, then we'll be able to do better ministry or, or more effective ministry or whatever. Um, but we've got to stop thinking that way. Um, in, in the New Testament, there's not a single command to the church that cannot be done by two or three people who love Jesus, who love each other, and get together on a regular basis. That's all the requirement that's needed to fulfill every command to the New Testament church. You don't need another person in your church. You don't need another dollar in the offering plate. You don't need a, a, a bigger building. You don't need a building if you don't have one. You don't need one more thing to do right now what Jesus is calling your church to do right now. Now, may he bring more in the future, more finances and more people and, and, and more structure of other types. Sure, he might. But we won't get to that other place if we don't do now what we're called to do with what we've been given right now. It's like the parable of the talents. Don't, you may have a single talent, but Jesus didn't get mad at the servant with a single talent because he only had one talent. That was what Jesus gave him. He was upset because he buried it instead of using it. So there's a whole bunch of us one-talent pastors out there. And just because what he entrusted us with may be fewer people than what he entrusted to others, it doesn't mean that we don't have the same assignment, and it doesn't mean we can't have the same kind of kingdom impact. Your church is big enough right now. We need to get busy doing kingdom work. Your church is big enough. Powerful words. Now, what would be some contact information? Somebody wants to order the book. Where can they get it? How can they order it? Yeah, both books are available on uh, on Amazon. New, uh, Small Church Essentials is with a publisher, so it's available at all regular Christian bookstores and, and outlets. You can also order both of them through my website, newsmallchurch.com. There will be a link there that will send you where you can um, buy either one of them. Um, and would you recommend those books be read by the lead pastor, or should they be read by the staff, some of the leadership, the member, or the lay leadership of the church? Who, who should read the book? 
Yeah, I, I think it's a good idea for the pastor to start by reading uh, the books themselves so they have an idea of what's there. But both of them are designed to be read by church leadership groups, because if the pastor just tries to go in and bring this new mentality, it's, it, it's a hard thing to get to even in our own heads, so it can be really hard to bring others to. But if you can do it and sit down and read it through with a team, that'd be great. The first one, the Grasshopper Myth, actually has a discussion guide in the back of it to help you go through with the team chapter by chapter. And I'm going to be putting together a discussion guide for the second book for Small Church Essentials really soon. And it will be on my website really soon. So you can walk through either book with a team. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Carl. We really appreciate you coming on the lead podcast. And we look forward to seeing you uh, down the road and continuing to bless the the church as you have. Have a great day. Yeah, have a great day, everybody. This has been the lead podcast. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to The Lead Podcast. My name is Ryan Becker. I'm one of the co-hosts and producer of this podcast, and we really appreciate your support. If you want to subscribe, then you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, any of your favorite podcatching apps. And if you do subscribe on iTunes, then we just ask that you please leave a review. That really helps us out to know what we can do better and the things that you are already enjoying, the things that we can continue doing. Make sure you do subscribe and leave a review because we're always doing giveaways, and that really uh, that's the way that we do it is we do it for those who have left a review. If you have any comments, questions, or feedback for the show, you can email us, leadsupodcast at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter, Roger Hernandez, at leadsu, and myself, at Ryan180Becker. Thank you guys so much for listening and supporting. Without you, this is not possible. We'll see you next time.